0: All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is April 25th, 2023, and I wanna thank you, comrades, for all being here tonight. Our class is gonna be on International Workers' Day, uh, also known as May Day, as we get ready for that to happen uh, this next Monday.
1: Yes, today's class is on International Workers' Day. What we'll be learning today, the struggle throughout the 19th century over the eight-hour workday, The 1886 Haymarket Affair, as well as a similar event that happened the next day in Milwaukee, the trials of the Haymarket martyrs and the actions following, and the communist legacy of Mayday. Part one, the struggle for the eight-hour day. This is a brief overview of labor before the eight-hour workday. With the Industrial Revolution of the 18th century, industrial exploitation of labor rose exponentially. The conditions of laborers at the time of the early 19th century were highly exhaustive, exploitative, and unsafe. Workers were often forced to work as many as 16 hour workdays and had up to six day work weeks. Child labor was also common, and many children were forced to work in dangerous jobs for low wages, and many even had to resort to prostitution. Marx and the International Workingmen's Association. Karl Marx was a fierce opponent of the capitalist exploitation of workers. Beyond writing about capital and at length about how the exploitation manifested and what alternative system was possible, he was a founder of the International Workingmen's Association, otherwise known as the First International. In addition to many voices calling for such as far back as 1817, the first international proposed eight hours at the legal limit of the working day at the Geneva Convention in 1866. Marxists were one of the leading forces in the early push for an eight-hour workday. And this will be from the history of May Day by Alexander Trachtenberg on the eight-hour movement, which started in the U.S. The eight-hour day movement, which directly gave birth to May Day. Uh, must, however, be traced to the general movement initiated in the United States in 1884. However, a generation before a national labor organization, which at first gave great promise of the developing into a militant organizing center of the American working class, took up the question of a shorter workday and proposed to organize a broad movement on its behalf. The first years of the Civil War, 1861 to 1862 saw the disappearance of the few national trade unions which had been formed just before the war began, especially the Molders Union and the Machinists and Blacksmiths Union. The years immediately following, however, witnessed the unification on a national scale of a number of local labor organizations and the urge for a national federation of all the unions became apparent. On August 20th, 1866, there gathered in Baltimore delegates from three scores of trade unions who formed the National Labor Union. The movement for the national organization was led by William H. Sylvies, the leader of the Reconstructed Molders Union, who, although a young man, was the outstanding figure in the labor movement of those years. Sylvies was in correspondence with the leaders of the First International in London and helped to influence the National Labor Union to establish relations with the General Council of the International. It was at the founding convention of the National Labor Union in 1866 that the following resolution was passed dealing with the shorter workday. The first and great necessity of the present to free labor of this country from capitalist slavery is the passing of a law by which eight hours shall be the normal working day in all states in the American union. We are resolved to put forth all our strength until this glorious result is attained. And and one quick piece of note, the first massive strike for the eight-hour workday took place on May 1st, 1867, around this time, um, Marx on the eight-hour movement. In the chapter, On the Working Day in the first volume of Capital, published in 1867, Marx calls attention to the inauguration of the eight-hour movement By the national labor union in the passage famous especially because it contains marxist telling reference to the solidarity of class interests between black and white workers he wrote in the united states of america any sort of independent labor movement was paralyzed so long as slavery disfigured a part of the republic labor with a white skin cannot emancipate itself where labor with a black skin is branded. But out of the death of slavery, a new vigorous life sprang. The first fruit of the Civil War was an agitation for the eight-hour day of movement which ran with express speed from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from New England to California. Marx calls attention to how almost simultaneously, in fact, within two weeks of each other, a workers' convention meeting in Baltimore voted for the eight hour day and an international Congress meeting in Geneva, Switzerland adopted a similar decision. Thus on both sides of the Atlantic did the working class movement, spontaneous outgrowth of the conditions of production endorse the same movement of the limitation of hours of labor concretize it in the demand for the eight hour day. That the decision of the Geneva Congress was prompted by the American decision can be seen from the following portion of the resolution. Quote, as this limitation represents the general demand of the workers of the North American United States, the Congress transformed this this demand into the general platform of the workers of the whole world, end quote. A similar influence of the American labor movement upon an international Congress and in behalf of the same cause, was exerted more profoundly 23 years later. Next slide.
0: Preparations for May Day strike. Although the decade 1880 to 1890 was generally one of the most active in the development of American industry and the extension of the home market, the year 1884 to 1885 experienced a depression, which was a cyclical depression following the crisis of 1873. The movement for a shorter workday received added impetus from the unemployment and the great suffering which prevailed during that period. Just as at the present time, the demand for the seven hour day was becoming a popular issue on account of the tremendous unemployment which American workers are expecting. And the great struggles of 1877, in which tens of thousands of railroad and steel workers militantly fought against the corporations and the government, which sent troops to suppress the strikes. Left an impress on the whole labor movement. It was the first great mass action of the American working class on a national scale. And although they were defeated by the combined forces of the state and capital, the American workers emerged from these struggles with a clearer understanding of their class position in society, a greater militancy, and a heightened morale. It was in part an answer to the coal barons of Pennsylvania who, in their attempt to destroy the miners' organization in the anthracite region, railroaded 10 militant miners, Molly Maguires, to the gallows in 1875. The Federation, just organized, saw the possibility of utilizing the slogan, of the 8-Hour Workday is a rallying organization slogan among the great masses of workers who were outside the Federation and the Knights of Labor, an older and then still growing organization. The Federation appealed to the Knights of Labor for support in the movement for the 8-Hour Day, realizing that only a general action involving all organized labor could make possible favorable results. At the convention of the Federation in 1885, The resolution on the walkout for May 1st of the following year was reiterated, and several national unions took action to prepare for the struggle, among them particularly the carpenters and cigar makers. The agitation for the May 1st action for the eight-hour day showed immediate results in the growth of membership and the existing unions. The Knights of labor grew by leaps and bounds, reaching the apex of its growth in 1886. It is reported that the L, which was better known than the Federation and was considered a fighting organization, increased its membership from 200,000 to nearly 700,000 during that period. The Federation, first to inaugurate the movement and definitely to set a date for the strike for the eight-hour day, also grew in numbers and particularly in prestige among the broad masses of the workers. As the day of the strike was approaching, and it was becoming evident that the leadership of the L, especially Terence Powderly, was sabotaging the movement and even secretly advising its unions not to strike, the popularity of the federation was still more enhanced. The rank and file of both organizations were enthusiastically preparing for the struggle. Eight-hour day leagues and associations sprang up in various cities, and an elevated spirit of militancy was felt throughout the labor movement which was infecting masses of unorganized workers. And with that, we'll go ahead and go to our first round of discussion. Uh, Comrade, you have the floor?
2: Okay, as someone who's not well versed in American labor history, what is the Federation referring to AFL? And then second question is, what did the Knights of Labor turn into?
0: All right, thank you, comrade.
1: Yes, the Federation refers to the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions. It is essentially what eventually became the AFL, the American Federation of Labor.
0: Thank you, comrade. Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor.
3: My understanding, and it could be corrected, is that the Knights of Labor basically fizzled out. As time went on, they became not effective, not important, and they just vanished. But what I wanted to say is that this sounds like it's going back to that now. People are working 16 hours a day. Some people are working 12 to 16 hours a day. Some of our own people in the in the party have two or three jobs. It's amazing. So we have gone back to that. Basically, under capitalism, the reforms don't last. They eventually the boss takes them back again in one way or the other. Thank you.
0: Thank you, comrade.
4: Just echoing, echoing the general secretary here. Yeah, it feels like it's starting to come full circle in a sense, Um, you know, with the beginnings of rumblings within the labor movement again, the rail strike stuff that's going on across this country. I find it amazing that even back in the day, communists were the first people demanding an eight hour work day. I, I think in the future, we need to be even more ambitious, given the advances in production that we've seen, given the fact that everyone could have, we could have full employment with scientific management and central planning of the economy. Um, I would even push for like a a less than a 40 hour week at this point, you know, under like a social society. And I I think it's very important considering how overworked the American people are that we communists pioneer reduction of the labor day without making any, you know, reduction of production itself, since the productive forces with computers and the computer revolution, the capitalist system still hasn't been able to absorb the technological revolution and automation that's occurring. And I think we're on the cusp of another massive capitalist crisis as a result of the cycle of overproduction that we're seeing.
3: Yeah, I'd like to interject. In the 1960s, we were calling for 30-hour week for 40-hour pay. That was the slogan, 30 for 40. And I think we should bring that back again. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And another thing that I wanted to bring up is that the first, second, and third internationals all championed the eight-hour workday at, at least some point in their lifetime, and you know that's in contrast to a lot of ultra-leftists that dropped that cause as time went, you know, went on. Uh, in the late 1800s, the anarchists were in favor of the eight-hour workday, but nowadays it's not one of their primary things at all. So I just wanted to throw that in there. The communists have always been involved with that struggle ever since Marx.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to mention, also just second, um, what uh, General Secretary McDean, we actually are seeing a comeback of uh, child
1: labor as well. Um, there's some examples of, I think, slaughterhouses from various states, they all uh, were sort of caught hiring underage uh, kids to basically work their uh, their workplace. But uh, the point I wanted to make was that um, I hear often a lot that a lot of uh, pro-capitalist advocates will, will say things
5: like, how capitalism raises the standard of living of all classes involved. But here we can see that it's actually the labor movement and Marxist um,
3: ideology, which actually improved conditions for people in capitalism. That's all. Thank you.
0: Thank you for that, comrade.
6: Yeah, just a small comment. I think May Day in Cuba is the largest participated festival that has not uh, anything to do with culture. I just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you.
1: Thank you, comrade. To keep in mind with the increased hours of work we have, one thing to think about in this time in 1886, as we get to the events that happened in 1886, at that time, though, there wasn't a federal law. Most states had laws on the books that an eight hour day was the law. But much like now, well, now we do have a federal law where the workday is eight hours. It's really just on paper. The eight hour work, they does not exist in reality for most workers, the vast majority of workers. So as the things have changed, they've essentially stayed the same. We still have the same fights ahead of us. And, and another thing to think about, just to put it in, in context where Comrade General Secretary said 30 hours pay for 40 hours work. That's essentially what they were fighting for, for lowering the work they were keeping the same pay. And to compare it to here, just so everybody's clear, is a six-hour workday, which would be even a mass improvement on the eight-hour workday. We, def- we need to keep fighting for lowering the wh- hours we work, but we need to make sure while we're fighting for lowering the hours, we fight for keeping the pay where it is now.
2: To talk about May Day today, compared to the U.S., it's considered an international holiday. So, one, the railroads in the U.S. do not recognize May Day as a holiday some people would have to take that day off. And then if you're working with people internationally, they have the day off on May Day. So I know people in India, when I was talking at work, they have May Day off. I just find that kind of ironic. That's all.
0: Thank you, comrade. And it reminds me as well that in the United States, you know, of course, we have Labor Day. And for a while, I thought that Labor Day was actually something that came after May Day to distract from it. It's from around the same time. I believe that it just slightly predates May Day. Uh, but you see how in the United States we go ahead and completely, you know, throw away May Day for the workers. And, you know, part of the part of the problem too is that when you see May Day events in the United States, oftentimes they throw it to a Sunday or something when, you know, the workers would be off. And that's not necessarily the purpose of May Day. May Day is is to strike. So that's another thing that I just wanted to throw in there, you know, when we mentioned May Day and the modern day.
7: Yeah, I just wanted to note that uh, last week, uh, Bernie Sanders, Senator from Vermont, uh, has called for, officially called for a 32-hour work week without loss of pay. He's already made that uh, official in, the, in a public speech. Just wanted to throw that in. Hopefully that, uh Maybe after this uh, coming election cycle, maybe some movements will be made.
0: Thank you, comrade. Really glad to hear that.
6: Yeah, Labor Day may not have been invented to distract from May Day, but it was certainly promoted to distract from May Day. There you go.
0: Thank you, comrade, and I definitely agree with that. All right, I don't see any more hands up, so we can go ahead and jump back to the presentation.
3: The History of May Day by Alexander Trackenberg. I want you to know who Alexander Trackenberg was. He was one of the leaders of the Communist Party way back. And he wrote a pamphlet which New Outlook should be putting out called The History of May Day by Alexander Trackenberg. OK, the strike movement spreads. The best way to learn the mood of the workers is to study the extent and the seriousness of the workers' struggles. The number of strikes during a given period is a good indicator of the fighting mood of workers. The number of strikes during 1885 and 1886 as compared with previous years shows what a spirit of militancy was animating in the labor movement. Not only were the workers preparing for action on May 1st, 1886, but in 1885, a year before, the number of strikes already showed an appreciable increase. During the years 1881 to 1884, the number of strikes and lockouts averaged less than 500. And on average, involved only about 150,000 workers a year. The strikes and lockouts in 1885 increased to about 700, and the number of workers involved jumped to 250,000. In 1886, the number of strikes more than doubled over the year before, 1885, attaining to as many as 1,572, with a proportion increase in the number of workers affected. Now, 600,000. How widespread the strike movement became in 1886 can be seen from the fact that while in 1885 there were only 2,467 establishments that were affected by strikes, the number involved in the following year, 1870, the following year, it had increased to 11,562. In spite of open sabotage by the leadership of the Knights of Labor, it was estimated that over half a million workers were directly involved in strikes for an eight hour day. The strike center was Chicago, where the strike movement was most widespread, but many other cities were also involved in the struggle for May 1st. New York, Washington, Baltimore, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and many other cities made a good showing in the walkout. The characteristic feature of the strike movement was that the unskilled and the unorganized workers were drawn into the struggle and that sympathetic strikes were quite prevalent during that period. A rebellious spirit was abroad in the country, and bourgeois historians talked of social war, quote, social war, and quote, hatred for capital, which was manifested during these strikes, and of the enthusiasm of the rank and file in the labor movement, which pervaded the movement. It is estimated that about half of the number of workers who struck on May 1st were successful. Although they did not get the eight hour day, they succeeded in appreciably reducing the hours of work. Thank you.
0: All right, and really briefly, we're gonna watch a video that goes over the Haymarket riot as we get into that. This is about two minutes long.
5: I think the Haymarket incident was huge, and, and one of the reasons the Haymarket incident was huge was the public reaction against it. Uh, so it became a huge public relations event, if, if that's the right term to use in the 19th century, probably not quite the right term, but a huge national, international event, the hanging of these men.
3: I believe that you can say it was the trial of the century and because it affected in its scope so many people's views, people around the world were interested in this.
8: It's a a very violent anti-labor history, is the history of uh, labor relations in, in this country.
5: Well, look, we had a civil war, 1861 to 1865. By 1870, people are talking about a second civil war. But this one wouldn't be between the states. It would be between the social classes. Uh, Rich people are building safe rooms in their mansions where they're storing guns and food and water so that they can hold out until the army comes and liberates them from the socialists who are going to be burning down everything. Uh, The anarchists are organizing massive marches down to Prairie Avenue in Chicago on Thanksgiving Day to remind the owners who they should really be thankful for that those turkeys were put on their, their tables by the workers who they're paying you know 10, 11, 12 cents an hour. People are talking openly about revolution when large groups of people feel that they are on the losing side economically have a revolutionary situation and that's exactly what many people see in the labor movement Uh, and in the socialist movement in the 19th century, and certainly in anarchism.
8: All right. History of May Day by Alexander Trachtenberg. The Chicago strike in Haymarket. The May 1st strike was most aggressive in Chicago, which was at that time the center of a militant left-wing labor movement. Although insufficiently clear politically on a number of the problems of the labor movement, It was, nevertheless, a fighting movement, always ready to call the workers to action, develop their fighting spirit, and set as their goal not only the immediate improvement of their living and working conditions, but the abolition of the capitalist system as well. With the aid of the revolutionary labor groups, the strike in Chicago assumed the largest proportions— an eight-hour association was formed long in advance of the strike to prepare for it. The Central Labor Union, composed of the left-wing labor unions, gave full support to the Eight-Hour Association, which was a united front organization, including the unions affiliated to the Federation, the KFL, and the Socialist Labor Party. On the Sunday before May 1st, The Central Labor Union organized a mobilization demonstration, which was attended by 25,000 workers. On May 1st, Chicago witnessed a great outpouring of workers who laid down tools at the call of the organized labor movement of the city. It was the most effective demonstration of class solidarity yet experienced by the labor movement itself. The importance at the time of the demand, the eight hour day, And the extent and character of the strike gave the movement significant political meaning. This significance was deepened by the developments of the next few days. The eight hour movement, culminating in the strike on May 1st, 1886, forms by itself a glorious chapter in the fighting history of the American working class. But revolutions have their counter revolutions until the revolutionary class finally establishes its. Complete control. The victorious march of the Chicago workers was arrested by the then superior combined force of the employers and the capitalist state, determined to destroy the militant leaders, hoping thereby to deal a deadly blow to the entire labor movement of Chicago. The events of May 3rd and 4th, which led to what is known as the Haymarket Affair, were a deck direct outgrowth of the May 1st strike. The demonstration held on May 4th at Haymarket Square was called to protest against the brutal attack of the police upon a meeting of striking workers at the McCormick Reaper Works on May 3rd, where six workers were killed and many wounded. The meeting was peaceful and about to be adjourned when the police again launched an attack upon the assembled workers. A bomb was thrown into the crowd, killing a sergeant. A battle ensued with the result that seven policemen and four workers were dead. The bloodbath at Haymarket Square, the railroading to the gallows of Parsons, Spees, Fisher, and Engel, and the imprisonment, of the other militant Chicago leaders was the counter-revolutionary answer of the Chicago bosses. It was the signal for action to the bosses all over the country. The second half of 1886 was marked by a concentrated offensive of the employers determined to regain the position lost during the strike movement of 1885 to 1886 the militia strikes in Milwaukee. Reaction to Haymarket in Milwaukee had led to a bloody massacre there on May 5th. A large contingent of Polish strikers, mostly unskilled workers, organized in a separate Knights of Labor section, led eight hour day strike processions that emanated from the St. Stanislaus Church. The processions had succeeded in closing a large brewery, the West Milwaukee Railroad Shop, a stove works employing 2,500, and the Reliance Works of the Alice Farm Machine Company. On May 4, three companies of militia prevented the closing of the Chicago Rolling Mill in Bayview, but used no violence in the process. The next day was the day after Haymarket, and the city authorities took a harder line. The mayor banned crowds upon the streets for other public places and asked employers to request aid if continued production were threatened. Wisconsin's governor reacted to Haymarket by calling out additional troops. The strikers assured reporters for the Milwaukee Journal that they had no intention of making an attack on the militia or company property and simply wished to show that they had not been intimidated. As they had done for several days, they went forth to close down the North Chicago rolling mill. When they neared the mill, the militia's commander issued a single, and according to the journal, inaudible order to stop. Then, apparently acting on orders from the governor, the troops fired directly into the crowd. The final count of the dead stood at eight Polish laborers and one German worker. In the hysterical post haymarket atmosphere, a coroner's jury praised the militia and returned no indictments. Meanwhile, nearly 50 workers received indictments and some served six to nine months terms for riot and conspiracy or riot and unlawful assembly. The local press wholesomely praised the governor for firmness and offered only mild objections when the employers made cash gifts to the militia companies involved. One year after the hanging of the Chicago labor leaders, the Federation now known as the American Federation of Labor at its convention in St. Louis in 1888, voted to rejuvenate the movement for the eight hour day. May 1st, which was already a tradition having served two years before as the concentration point of the powerful movement of the workers, based upon a political class issue, was again chosen as the day upon which to reinaugurate the struggle for the eight-hour day, May 1st, 1890, was to witness a nationwide strike for the shorter workday. At the convention in 1889, the leaders of the AF of L, headed by Samuel Gompers, succeeded in limiting the strike movement. It was decided that the Carpenters Union, which was considered best prepared for the strike, should lead off with the strike. And if it proved successful, other unions were to fall in line. In his autobiography, Gompers tells how the AFL contributed to making May Day an international labor holiday. As plans for the eight-hour movement developed, we were constantly realizing how we could widen our purpose. As the time of the meeting of the International Working Man's Congress in Paris approached, it occurred to me that we could aid our movement by an expression of worldwide sympathy from that Congress. Gompers, who had already exhibited all the attributes of reformism and opportunism, which later came to full bloom in his class collaborationist policy, was ready to get the support of a movement among the workers, the influence of which he strongly combated.
0: All right, and with that, we'll go ahead and stop for our second round of uh, questions and comments. And before we start with that, I just wanna say that, you know, the Haymarket Affair is, I think, one of the perfect examples of how the spontaneity of anarchists can work to the detriment of a movement just going in and throwing a bomb in the middle of the strike and killing police officers. And you saw what happened. Immediately, there was a response where more troops and more police were called out in different cities, and it resulted in that that movement being repressed. Even back in the late 1800s, when anarchists at least fought for something like an eight-hour day, they were still working to the detriment of the working class movement with their spontaneity and individualism. And it was an example of individualism, too. This person decided that they were going to throw the bomb without any regard to what the other striking workers thought about it. So I just wanted to include that in there.
1: Thank you. Uh, There's a couple of things I want to touch on. First, I want to read something quick from the New York Bureau of Labor Statistics Report, 1887. The year 1886 has witnessed a more profound and far more extended agitation among the members of organized labor than any previous year in the history of our country. The year 1886 will forever be remembered as one of the greatest importance in the battle between capital and labor in the United States. A few of the big cities that participated in, in those strikes in 1886 were mentioned. But it was far more than just the big cities. There are a lot of small cities and rural towns that participated in these Mayday strikes, such as Montclair, New Jersey, Duluth, Minnesota, Argentine, Kansas, South Garden, Maine, Mobile, Alabama, and Galveston, Texas, two places you won't see much labor activity nowadays. And to even add to it, A small town in New York, Troy, New York, had 5,000 workers out on strike for May Day in 1886. That is militancy you will not see in the modern labor movement. And I want to briefly touch on, there is uh, the flyers that were put out to get the workers out on the streets for May 1st, 1886. And this is language you won't hear from the modern labor movement either. Arouse ye toilers of America, lay down your tools on May 1st, 1886 cease your labor close the factories mills and mines for one day in the year one day of revolt not of rest a day not ordained by the bragging spokesman of institutions holding the world of labor in bondage a day on which labor makes its own laws and has the power to execute them all without the consent or approval of those who oppress and rule a day on which in tremendous force the unity of the army of toilers is arrayed against the powers that today hold sway over the destinies of the people of all nations. A day of protest against oppression and tyranny, against ignorance and war of any kind. A day on which to begin to enjoy eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will.
0: All right, thank you for that, comrade. Your comment about the uh, bombing and the anarchists,
3: like. I had thought that bombing was by an agent provocateur, not one of the anarchists themselves, and it seems so. It is not known who it
1: came from. There's theories that it was an agent provocateur. There's theories that it was the anarchists. Quite frankly, if we look at history, it could be either one. History is showing that it could be either one. So we're not 100% sure who actually threw the bombs.
0: Yeah, and I'll just go ahead and add that it could be both. Um, you know, you look at how it worked to the detriment at the time of the labor movement. It's very possible that the anarchists that threw the bomb, supposed anarchists, could have also been an agent provocateur. That happens nowadays in the different anarchist, you know, events and actions that you see around the country where there are federal and, and, you know, other law enforcement agents that get into that field. So just to answer your question, it could be both.
8: Adding on to the point that, like, anarchists don't really have any, like good real proposals nowadays the biggest anarchist movement is just a, like a million people or whatever subscribed to the anti-work subreddit and they like don't really have they've done like one strike or something but like otherwise they don't have much they're, they're just calling the abolition of work it's not good Realistic goal if you don't like understand how to get it through dictatorship of the proletariat and central planning and AI and stuff.
0: Thank you for that, comrade. And I'll just add that communists are pro work. We're not anti work. Under socialism, you're going to have to work. And that's fulfilling. You should want to help in the building of society and the machinery that lets us all live. So this modern anti work movement is just more ultra left nonsense that's being promoted. So I just wanted to. Add that in there.
9: I just think that these documents and what we're learning about just highlight the need again for the Vanguard Party and why that's so important. Right. Anarchism, you can think of it as like a, a big mob of people, right? It's a big blob. And every once in a while, someone within the blob will point out a direction and say, that's our enemy. And then the whole blob will just move as a big mass towards it. Right. And some people will go this direction, some people will go that direction. Those are really vulnerable. It's really easy to exploit the mob, right? Someone could direct them in a direction that's wrong. It can easily be split up. Saboteurs can get in from within. And that's why having that discipline to be in a vanguard party with organization and hierarchy and planning, which is the biggest thing, is so important, right? One of the biggest reasons that Chaz failed is that no one could really tell anyone else what to do. And so everyone just sort of did their own thing. Right, I mean, Comrade took me to see Chaz when we were there. Some people were planning out making a garden. Some people were apparently doing art. And the whole thing was beaten because no one wanted to get up at 5 a.m. to stop the police, right? So this just highlights the importance, again, of why we need unions because unions are how we organize and unions have hierarchies and they have discipline, get organized.
6: Thank you
0: for that, Comrade.
6: So to me, it feels like uh, May Day in general is on its last legs. That might be a false perception. So can anybody just clarify if it's a strong movement generally around the world? And uh, if it isn't, what can we do to get it to be more popular?
7: That's it. Thank you.
1: right. May Day is not as far from on its last legs. May Day is essentially Labor Day everywhere else in the world. If you are uh, all the unions affiliated with the World Federation and Slave Unions, have massive actions on May Day. There's even actions on May Day in the United States, so they don't get the public mainstream of coverage. There is a rally in New York City that's happening in the afternoon. The American Labor Museum is having a May Day festival. There is a May Day action in New Washington, D.C. There are May Day actions in the Pacific Northwest. I know Comrade has mentioned going to one on Sunday. And there was also actions that are happening on May Day itself. So the main problem right now here in the U.S. is most of these actions are happening on May Day itself. And when it doesn't fall on a weekend, it affects workers because they a lot of workers can't get off work to attend these events. But May Day is outside North America is as strong as ever.
0: All right. Thank you, comrade. And I wanted to add to that as well. Having a communist presence at May Day. And I mean, going as the party or whatever communist group you're in, because I know we have, you know, some other members that might be in their own organizations, just making sure that we kind of try to combat the liberal and anarchist kind of control that is voiced over May Day nowadays. So it doesn't matter what kind of May Day event is going on near you, whether it's hosted by labor unions or a liberal group or anarchists going there and presenting an actual socialist, you know, org to try to, you know, bring back that communist legacy, I think is going to be part of it because we need to get people from industry. We need to get people from the labor unions involved in our movement. And I think what better way to do that than by showing up to May Day. So, yeah. Uh,
10: yeah, I just wanted to say comrade, one small thing you can do is just inform your coworkers about this because I I told my coworkers about this all the time and it really blows their mind. And they have all these other questions and it's something that's part of our history that like it's like shielded from them. So it really it really can go a long way.
0: Thank you, comrade and comrade general secretary.
3: Yeah, the misconception is that May Day is a communist day. Let me correct that. May Day in 1886 was founded. It is as American as apple pie has nothing to do with the Soviet Union, nothing to do with communism. The Soviets and the communists adopted May Day as their day, years later. But it was originally done here in this country, not in France, not in Germany, not in Russia. It was done here first. And that's the misconception. We have to get through the message that May Day is an American day. And it's a day for working people. That's what it's a day, where they stand up and they say, I'm proud to be a worker, and I want to be respected. That's all. If we can get that through, and it's easy to do with facts and figures, that we got to take back. We got to take back May Day as the day of, it's an American day. And all the other countries of the world have now adopted May Day. So it's not dying on the planet Earth. Presently, it's an active The people that led May Day in the past, let's be honest, were the socialists and the communists. They were all gotten rid of from the labor unions. So once you got rid of them, what do you have? You have a bunch of people who don't even think they're workers. Remember that, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Cameron. And I just wanted to clarify real quick. You know, when I said the, the trying to bring back the communist legacy of May Day, it is definitely an American day, and it wasn't inherently communist to begin with. What I mean by that is that, you know, ever since the First International and up to the Third International, communists were very, very involved with May Day, and the Soviets, you know, they upheld it and they were very supportive of it. And I think that that's something that we need to bring back. I see the hands that are up. We do need to get back to the presentation, which is the aftermath of Haymarket. And the communist legacy of May Day. I'm uh, um, at 9 p.m., so I can start out reading on this, and then I'll get somebody to read at least the second part of it. The eight-hour workdays implemented. Eight-hour workdays were not immediately implemented across the board. In 1898, United Mine Workers of America won an eight-hour workday. In 1900, the Building Trades Council in San Francisco declared workers would only work eight hours a day. By 1912. Teddy Roosevelt included an eight-hour workday on his presidential platform. And World War I made workers strike more for the eight-hour workday because they were thrown into a lot of factories for production for the war effort, and it was really exhaustive. Uh, So that reinvigorated that at the time. And that led to the Adamson Act of 1916, which instituted eight-hour workdays in rail industries. In 1937, with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal programs, the Fair Labor Standards Act was instituted, uh, which put the eight-hour workday into place in a number of industries. And I just included two graphics on the side. One is from IWW that shows a, a campaign for the eight-hour workday. Wages will go up for you know eight hours work. And some stamps down here from the Labor Center in New York that shows eight-hour workday eight for work, eight for sleep, eight for free time, nearer to justice. So I just wanted to include that in there. And I'll go ahead and read this. Lenin on May Day, this is from History of May Day by Alexander Trachtenberg. Early in the activity in the Russian revolutionary movement, Lenin contributed to making May Day known to the Russian workers as a day of demonstration and struggle. While in prison in 1896, Lenin wrote a May Day leaflet for the St. Petersburg Union of Struggle for the Liberation of the Working Class, one of the first Marxist political groups in Russia. The leaflet was smuggled out of prison and 2,000 mimeographed copies distributed among the workers in 40 factories. It was very short and written in Lenin's characteristically simple and direct style so that the least developed among the workers could understand it. Quote, when a month later, the famous textile strikes of 1896 broke out, workers were telling us that the first impetus was given by the little modest May Day leaflet, end quote, wrote a contemporary who helped to issue it. After telling the workers how they were exploited for the benefit of the owners of the factories in which they work and how the government persecutes those who demand improvement in their conditions, Lenin proceeds to write about the significance of May Day. In France, England, Germany and other countries where workers have already been united in powerful unions and have won for themselves many rights, they organized on April 19th, May 1st, which the Russian calendar was 13 days behind the West European calendar, a general holiday of labor. Leaving the stifling factories they march with unfurled banners to the strains of music along the main streets of the cities, demonstrating to the bosses their continuously growing power. They assemble at great mass demonstrations where speeches are made recounting the victories over the bosses during the preceding year and lay plans for the struggle in the future. Under the threat of strike, the bosses do not dare to fine the workers for not appearing at the factories on that day. On this day, the workers also remind the bosses of their main demand, eight hours work, eight hours rest, and eight hours recreation. This is what the workers of other countries are demanding now. The Russian revolutionary movement utilized May Day to great advantage. In the preface to a pamphlet, May Days in Kharkov, published in November 1900, Lenin wrote, quote, in another six months, the Russian workers will celebrate the first of May of the first year of the new century, and it is time that we set to work to make the arrangements for organizing the celebrations, and a large a number of centers as possible, and on as imposing a scale, not only by the number that will take part in them, but also by their organized character, by the class consciousness they will reveal, by the determination that will be shown to commence irrepressible struggle for the political liberation of the Russian people, and consequently for a free opportunity for the class development of the proletariat and its open struggle for socialism. It can be seen how important Lenin considered the May Day demonstrations since he called attention to them six months ahead of time. To him, May Day was a rallying point for, quote, the irrepressible struggle of the political liberation of the Russian people, end quote, for the class development of the proletariat and its open struggle for socialism. Speaking of how May Day celebrations can become great political demonstrations, Lenin asked why the Kharkov May Day celebration in 1900 was an event of outstanding importance and answered, quote, the mass participation of the workers in the strike, the huge mass meetings in the streets, the unfurling of red flags, the presentation of demands indicated in leaflets and the revolutionary character of these demands, eight hour day and political liberty, end quote. Lenin upbraids the Kharkov party leaders for joining the demands for the eight-hour day with other minor and purely economic demands, for he does not want the political character of May Day in any way be clouded. He writes in this preface: quote, "The first of these demands, the eight-hour day, is the general demand put forward by the proletariat in all countries. The fact that this demand was put forward indicates that the advanced workers of Kharkov realize their solidarity with the international socialist labor movement, but precisely for this reason." A demand like this would not have been included among minor demands like better treatment by foremen or a 10-cent-per-wage increase in wages. The demand for an eight-hour day, however, is the demand of the whole proletariat, presented not to individual employers, but to the government as a representative of the whole of the present-day social and political system, to the capitalist class as a whole, to the owners of all the means of production,
10: the Comintern inherits May Day traditions. The Communist International, inheritor of the best traditions of the revolutionary proletarian movement since Marx and Engels published the Communist Manifesto in 1848, carries on the traditions of May Day, and the Communist parties of the various capitalist countries call upon the workers each year to stop work on May Day, to go into the streets, to demonstrate their growing strength in international solidarity, to demand a shorter workday now the seven-hour day, without reduction in pay, to demand social insurance, to fight the war danger and defend the Soviet Union, to fight against imperialism and colonial oppression, to struggle against race discrimination and lynching, to denounce the social fascist as part of the capitalist machine, to resolve to build their revolutionary unions, to proclaim their determination an iron will to organize for the overthrow of the capitalist system and for the establishment of a universal Soviet republic.
0: So we'll go to our last round of questions and comments for tonight.
8: I think it's a real shame that we aren't effectively taught about this in like our history classes. This is the first time I've ever learned about Mayday in a like formal setting. So I think
6: it's just another example of how our public education is failing us.
0: Thank you, Comrade.
6: Oh, yeah. Um so whenever worker strikes go on, I'm curious about what you do with services such as like healthcare or child services because those are kind of essential for workers in those times. What's our stance on that? Thank you.
1: Could you clarify a question? What do the workers do that go on strike with regards to childcare and healthcare?
6: Yeah. So for example, if the workers are are kind of your more industrialization, industrialized workers are going on strike and we expect there to be some confrontations with police and stuff, you need to have emergency medical services in order to take care of workers whenever that happens. And with child services, it would be workers that if they rely on childcare services to take care of their children... Like, that's kind of what I'm asking. Like, how would we handle that in that situation?
1: That's a good question. I know, you know, a lot of pickle lines nowadays, just like you'll see children on the lines with the workers, whether they be the children of the workers or those uh, marching in solidarity. But that is something that needs to be worked out because really there is no inherent policy with regards to childcare um, and healthcare. care. Right now, you don't really see a lot of clashes with police nowadays and strikes. Although there is some. You know, when Verizon workers were on strike here in New York in 2016, there was a cop call that ran over workers on the line to get scabs in. And it's, that's, you know, nowadays when cops unionize themselves, they're still breaking strikes. It is. It, uh, but uh, there's really... That's something we could work out where we have groups in solidarity that learned uh, first aid and whatnot, but that's really not something that's I've noticed in any strike on any picket line I've walked that's just not yeah, existing right now.
3: I want to add to that, that the strike committee of the unions, it's they're the ones whose responsibility is to figure that out. And it's important, but it's not our responsibility. We're not the head of any union. Uh, We're not going to be involved with leading any strikes. It has to be the Union leadership. Thank you.
0: Thank you, comrades.
3: Yeah,
4: again, um, during times of militant action, particularly um, I'm drawing this from what uh, the KPD did in uh, Germany with their strikes and their struggles, the Communist Party, would have a fraternal organization that would be a social aid organization that could help fund the relatives and like the family members of comrades who were either imprisoned or dead. They had a red help, hilfe. If things escalated to that point in America, you'd also see something like that develop, where you'd have something like a a new IWO, which was our own uh, healthcare and our social aid organization that we had here that we had for the party, we would see something like that develop. I mean, you know, keep in mind communists in this country, uh, we used to have very strong links. In, we used to control neighborhoods in New York City and in other parts of the country. And around the world, there's communist parties that control neighborhoods, have social welfare organizations, run for elections at a national level. And we just need to get back to that point where we're competitive and visible on the national stage again. And we have a big party, we control big unions we run for elections and we are, it, and we're leading the class
0: struggle in, in America. All right. Thank you for that, comrade.
6: First, I wanted to echo and say that I think the American history of May Day and how it's been obscured is really important and part of what leads to ultra leftism. They don't know our history. They don't, they think, nothing can be contributed from the U.S., but stuff has already been contributed. And then about childcare, care, um, that used to be a really common demand, like to your boss, like labor unions would demand it. I think we need to work on getting that demand back out there in general, since I think, since it's not being talked about, it's a lot of people don't know that it's a problem if they don't have children themselves as well.
0: Thank you, comrade.
11: Good evening, comrades. So I wanted to tell um, everybody here about the little uh, souvenir I have. It's uh, May Day, 48 years ago. May Day 1975. I was in Paris, and it is the largest crowd I've ever seen in my life. There was a million people in the streets. And one reason was, very special reason. The day before, April 30th, 1975, do you remember what happened? The victory in Vietnam, Saigon was taken by the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army, okay? And in the streets of Paris, you had a sea of NLF flags, NLF, National Liberation Front of Vietnam. It was a red with blue with a star in the middle. A sea of those flags, the wind was blowing. Those flags were making a lot of noise. It was incredible sight I could never ever forget. 48 years ago, comrade, thank you.
0: Thank you, comrade. And that just goes to show even more the communist legacy that exists alongside Mayday. Uh, that You know, we were also celebrating uh, the victories of our movement internationally at that time. And, you know, I bet in certain locations around the United States this year, you'll probably see uh, some Cuban flags uh, because of the, the survival of Cuba as a socialist state, you know, as well as trying to end the blockade on Cuba. And you might see some other flags, too. Uh, depending on what event you go to, you might see a Russian flag because of the thing in Ukraine. So I think that that just goes to further exemplify uh, the communist involvement with May Day.
1: Yeah. so uh, my hand was up to retouch on something from the last section. And as well, I wanted to touch on gains from the first May Day. But first, with regards to the bomb being thrown, what was used to pin on the the eight Haymarket uh, martyrs was on one of the flyers that were put out for March, May 4th was revenge working men to arms. Um, August Spies, who was in charge of printing these flyers, had later testified, it was one of the Haymarket 8, he did not put that on the flyers. So, to touch on what Kamran said at the last uh, discussion period, that could have been anarchists doing their own thing like they always do, or that could have been a saboteur. So that's what really they used to railroad the Haymarket the hey 8. And a lot of them weren't even involved in in the strike; they were just known leaders of the labor movement in Chicago at that time. And to touch on some of the gains, like in the slides, we had some gains that all later on the down the line. But right after that first May Day in 1886, approximately 185 thousand workers gained the eight-hour workday in the immediate aftermath of May 1st, 1886. And another, at least two thousand workers had cuts in hours from 12 to either 10 or nine hours in the immediate aftermath. So though everybody didn't get eight hours right after, there was a lot of gains in the immediate aftermath of Haymarket. Thank you.
0: Thank you, comrade.
7: I just wanted to say that I was the union leader for my facility uh, in New York State, the Dixon uh, treatment facility, and uh, all the downstate facilities across New York State and uh, a few hundred people and and uh, many patients. And what I did is I always had on my door and every time something political came up, I would always, always paste something to my door. And when it came to May Day, somebody had wrote, I forgot who it was, actually wrote a little article, a little page uh, saying, May Day, born in the USA. And uh, that, that was the statement that that was the the title of the the piece. And I uh, copied that and put that on my door. And I sent that over to all the other facilities shop stewards and uh, told them to paste that on there. And I also pasted it on on the union billboard, which I controlled. And I also told all the other stewards to make sure that that was put up in the union billboards. But... uh, and I, and I told to the workers and uh, told them, make sure that they, they read that. And I also printed out and put it in people's mailboxes and told them, uh, make sure that they knew that the eight-hour day was uh, a very patriotic issue.
0: All right. Thank you for that, comrade.
6: Thank you, comrades. First of all, wanted to touch on, I think it was a new comrade who asked about what is our... Or does our party have a plan at all about uh, first aid and so forth? Let me just clarify. I wanted to get clarity. What did she mean by that By that question? Was it like, if things go wrong and a demonstration, like what's our party's plan to facilitate help and uh, medical treatment when there's injuries? Who was the comrade that asked that question?
0: Yeah, I believe that that was the, the question was, how do we manage childcare and um, health care for people? when they're striking
6: well we we're working toward from what i've heard everyone else say that we're first of all we can't do those things until we have more infrastructure and gain more control first but it is painful that we can't do much for now but we're working toward it we're well aware of it if i could give an example for those of you who don't know that are new Um, This is not related to Mayday, but it is related to that, how things can get ugly at demonstrations, no matter that we're behaving ourselves. The fact is the authorities of the establishments are in their own world by the bosses of the bourgeoisie. And if anything that is not within their line of their world, they see it as a threat and they will be the ones to throw the first punches. Usually history shows that. Well, back when there was the George Floyd protests going on, In Westminster, there was a huge protest right in front of City Hall. I was there. Pretty much everybody else that was there was not even close to communists. I was the only one there. But anyway, you know, I firsthand have experienced the loss of a childhood friend at the hands of police, basically. So um, not being able to have the knowledge to recitate her or save her life really, really is painful. But that's why... We have a lot of people there who also have experienced such things like that that are helping the party to work toward that. So we have a plan to get there. We're not blind to that, but we just can't do it when we don't have the infrastructure else in place. Thank but, you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah.
0: And I wanted to add real quick that one of the one of the reasons why anarchists are a detriment to the things that we do, and especially May Day, is uh, I'll give an example of Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon is known not just around the state, but around the country, as just a hot spot of riots, clashes. Uh, you see it constantly in the media, uh, and they the anarchists have this thing of you can't tactic police, um, but their actions can get people hurt and killed. Uh, one of my friends who is still in the uh, party uh, was uh, flashbanged at one of those events. I've I've heard stories of you know children that were as young as you know, preteen age that got caught up in all of that because anarchists just told everybody to go out there. And so that's why I wanted to just add that in there that anarchists not only, you know, politically work to the detriment of things, but physically they can get people hurt and killed uh, with their spontaneity.
3: Thank you.
2: Uh, so on that note on writing and and anarchists, um, this is more for the first part, but um, I just found out I was looking into this in st louis i believe it was in 17 1877 st louis had like a five-day general strike which was basically started by i think it was called like the working party workmen party the railroad workers and the unions and some other like leftist organizations and it was kind of parallel to the paris commune that happened i believe five years before that and Basically, they allowed traffic to come in that wasn't commercial, and that went on for five days. Now, it was stopped because, well, the anarchists, once again, rioters were happening, and they had the police there, and they finally had an excuse to go in and take people out. Uh, They brought in, I believe, infantry from different states, um, all the way from Colorado. Look into it. It's pretty interesting. That happened in St. Louis in 1877, and that's all I wanted to bring up. Thank you, comrade.
10: Quick two-part question. I was very curious on whether or not China adheres to the eight-hour workday. And um, also, I've never really like heard about um, any big celebrations like uh, Cuba on, on May Day and see if they uh, also, if, if it's widely celebrated in China also. And pretty much any other socialist countries like Vietnam and such. That's all.
0: Thank you, comrade.
6: Yeah, for a long time, they didn't institute eight hour workdays, but uh, I'm pretty sure since the early 2000s, it's uh, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. is standard workday in China. But nonetheless, uh, we can't just abstract the formalization from our society and apply it to uh, another one as a measurement of their progressiveness. Right, uh, They have their own material conditions, uh, and if they need 12-hour workdays in order to industrialize and get hospitals out in cities and stuff like that, then so be it. And we can't say that's more or less progressive than it is in America because we have eight-hour workdays secured due to class struggle.
3: All
0: right. Thank you for that, comrade.
3: thing I want to mention is in this letter that Lennon wrote in the reading tonight, notice the city was called Karko. That should ring a bell here and everybody. Kharkov is a city in the Ukraine. A big city. It's the second biggest city, I believe, in the Ukraine. And a scene of a lot of uh, battles and things like that recently. When this was written, Kharkov was friendly to Russia. This was written before there was fascism in the Ukraine. When Lenin wrote this. They were all statues all over Cockroach by Lenin. Every single one has been taken down by the new government that came in in 2014, the fascist government. And the media is not calling it what they are. They're fascist. If it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck. Very simple. They outlawed the Communist Party in the Ukraine, uh, which is the second biggest party in the Ukraine. And they outlawed the first biggest party, which was called the party of regions. All right. And they overthrew the government that was elected. And they they're closing down the trade union movement. That's what they're doing right now. So these people are what they are. And the news media is helping the fascists in Ukraine. And that's what's going on. But I wanted to mention it's Kharkov. Interesting how things have changed. Okay. That same city now represents fascism. Thank you.
6: Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for marxist leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.